John Ortberg tells a story. I read it this week and it tickled my heart, so I wanted to share it with you. He tells a story about a man who was being tailgated by a woman who was in a huge hurry and she was irritated. And so she was riding his tail in traffic and, and they were cruising along. And then all of a sudden, the gentleman came to an intersection just as the light was turning yellow. And so he slammed on the brakes and came to an abrupt stop. When this happened, the woman who, let me remind you, was in an extreme hurry that was behind him, when he slammed on the brakes, uh, she went ballistic. She immediately honked her horn at him and screamed all kinds of naughty words in her frustration. She ranted and raved and, and used hand gestures that I'm sure you can picture even as I say it. While she was in mid-rant, someone tapped on her window. She was stunned to look up and see a police officer standing by her car door. He promptly asked her to step out of her car, cuffed her, and took her to the station where she was searched and fingerprinted and put into a cell. After a couple hours, she was released, and the arresting officer gave her her personal effects, saying, I'm very sorry for the mistake, ma'am. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and using bad gestures and bad language, and I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker and the Choose Life license plate holder and the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign and the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> Ortberg says the world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their car, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radio, Christian jewelry around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, and Christian magazines on their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. And that precious one is what I'd like to talk to you about tonight. But would you just pray with me before we begin? <laughs> Father, I thank you. Oh, I thank you for who you are. Thank you that you saved my soul. That you rescued me from hell. And that you put my feet on solid ground. And I will forever praise your name for that, Lord. I pray for those who are here tonight who are dry and weary. I thank you that you invite them to come to you and, and you promise that you'll give them rest. I pray that you do that tonight. I pray for those who have hardened their heart and who, have, who, have, who, who need to break up the unplowed ground of their heart, Lord God, so that your word can be planted richly within them tonight. And I pray, Lord God, that even right now as I speak, Lord, that your spirit would stir in them such a hunger, such a desire to know you better. Lord, awaken us from our slumber. Stir us from our sleep, Lord God. Give us eyes to see you like we've never seen you before. Give us hearts to receive you, Lord. Father, I pray that our ears would be tuned to wisdom tonight, that we would hear your voice through the power of your word, and that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds, and that it truly would bring lasting change in this house. I'm mindful, Lord. I'm so mindful that it's not by might and it's not by power. It's nothing that Rhea Briscoe can say or do. It's by your spirit. And so we give your Holy Spirit its rightful place here tonight. I pray that you would just go in and out of these pews, Lord God, that you would minister to the hearts and the minds of the, of the men and women here. Lord, that you would fill my mouth with your words and that I would say only what you tell me to say, but that I would say it with confidence and with boldness and with great authority. Lord, we love you. 
And we are just so honored to be in your presence tonight. We're mindful of your presence tonight. And you promise that where you're lifted up, you'll draw all men unto you. Draw us to you tonight, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16, if you're having trouble finding Philippians, it helps me. Go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or General Electric Power Company. Um, That helps me. And so uh, it's right after the book of Ephesians, before you get to Colossians, wedged right there in the middle. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. This is Paul writing from prison not knowing if he's going to die or live in a grungy prison, not like the ones we have today. Didn't do anything to really deserve to be there. And he is telling the Philippians to do this. Do all things without complaining or or disputing. That's interesting to me. He's saying it while he's in a prison cell, arrested for, for doing nothing but doing what Jesus told him to do, not knowing if he's going to live or die. And he's telling them not to do anything not, not, to, not to do anything, uh, do all things without complaining. So let's look at it. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you, sh- you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's important that you know just prior to these two verses, Paul had been instructing the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's so fascinating to me to see how this this passage builds on itself, so much so that I want to go back and just look at verses 1 through 13, and I want you to see what he says to the Philippians before he tells them to work out their salvation and do that by not grumbling or complaining. He says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy by doing this by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being in one accord of one mind. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Oh my, I could, I could park right there and preach all night. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Look out for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this be your mind, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He didn't care what people thought about him. Taking on the form of a bondservant, he he became a servant to others. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and those in in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do everything without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not labored in vain. He says, work out your own salvation. That means we need to work it out. We need to live out evidence of our salvation in our relationships with one another, in our day-to-day life, learning to apply God's word and walking in obedience to it so that our salvation will be realized by others. My mom used to say to me, she, she quoted Francis of Assisi all the time, Maria, preach Christ always when necessary, use words. In other words, my behavior should preach Christ. I, I don't even have to open my mouth for you to know I'm a Christ follower if my behavior lines up with his word. And then he gives us some good news. It's not us doing this on our own. He said, it's God who works in you both to will. I don't even have the ability to will this. I don't even have the ability to desire to to work out my salvation and to not grumble and complain. It's God who works in me, both to will and to do his good pleasure. But that doesn't mean God is doing all the work. See, this is where we, we, we are misled sometimes. It means that you are making the decision and God is providing the power. You see, sanctification involves our cooperation with the Spirit. John Phillips says, as we say no to the wrong and yes to the right, he releases the effective working of his power. This cooperation produces a transformation in our conduct that is essential in maintaining a good testimony in this world. Did you ever hear somebody say, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. And it's because we haven't cooperated with the effective power working of the Holy Spirit in our life. So then Paul goes on and he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And and I I did just chuckle as I was typing that. And I I wrote seriously with an exclamation point. All things? How about some things? How about on a good day, Rhea? How can we do all things without grumbling or complaining? It's by doing what Paul said, by taking on the same mind, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. He was humble. He put others and their needs first. He took on the attitude of a servant. Uh, he, he lived a self-sacrificial life. He, he became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Oh, I, I, I fail so miserably there. Am I obedient even to the point of death? So he says, do all things without complaining or disputing. That word do is interesting there. It means to be the author of a thing. It expresses an action as continued yet not completed. In other words, keep doing it. I want you to notice that it's a command that Paul is giving. It's not a suggestion. He is commanding us to do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's in the present imperative. It's in the active voice. It means that it has to be an act of my will. God is not going to zap me and keep me from grumbling or complaining. I have to make an act of my will. And I have to remember this is a command in the word of God to do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's in the present tense. It means that, that it becomes, it needs to be continuous. It needs to be my habit, how I live my life. He says, do all things. That, that word all means all, every, any as a whole. 
Here's what I love. It means all without exception. I don't know about you, but I would prefer that he said some things. But he says all without exception. That seemed a little much to me. The truth is, I don't think Christians really look at complaining and grumbling as such a big deal. We tend to dismiss it or minimize it, and we tolerate it in our life. But we need to remember that Paul is commanding us here that in everything we do, we need to do it without grumbling or complaining. I think sometimes we feel justified complaining about things or grumbling about things. And we think, well, you know, certainly you understand my circumstances, Lord. No, we're told, we're commanded to do all things without grumbling or complaining. As I was studying it this week, it's very convicting. I had to to stop mid-sentence so many times because I was like, Lord, I want to, you say that, that you'll help me work out my salvation, that you'll give me the power to do this. And now I'm grabbing a hold of this promise that you say I can do all things without grumbling or complaining and that you will give me the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. If that means I have to stop mid-sentence, I will. Do all things without that word. This is interesting. You think, well, why are you stopping on every word? Because it's fascinating. That word without means separately. It means isolation. (laughs) Paul was saying we need to live isolated from grumbling and complaining. It comes from the root word, meaning the space lying between two places or limits. In other words, we need to put some space between us and grumbling. We need to put some space between us and complaining. We need to not allow it anywhere near us. We need to live isolated from it. Do all things without complaining. That word complaining is a murmur, a murmuring, a muttering, a secret debate. We think God doesn't know we're doing it. A secret displeasure not openly avowed. It comes from the root word meaning uh, those who confer secretly together or those who, who discontently complain. It's like me and Leslie, you're not hearing it, or Leslie and I. It's like us having this conversation and me just complaining to her, but you, you know, I give you a smile and I praise the Lord, how are you? But Leslie and I secretly are conferring and I'm grumbling and complaining to her. Do you see it? The idea of complaining can describe the low tone used in whispering a complaint or talking in secret. Call it what you want. Complaining, grumbling, murmuring, disputing. Paul is being very clear. There should be no place for this in a Christian's life. Grumbling. I've seen it. I have some people around me that really like to grumble. And when I hang around them, I find myself grumbling and and thinking it's okay. Uh, Grumbling is like a poison. It infects our minds and it filters through every aspect of our being. You start out grumbling about something and before you know it, you aren't happy with anything in life. You have something to complain about in every situation. Can I just tell you that discontentment is a choice? We choose whether or not to be happy about our present circumstances. It's a choice. And we know that because the Apostle Paul is writing this very letter from prison. And this letter, does anybody know what the book of Philippians is called? What epistle is it called? The joy epistle. Are you kidding me? He is in prison and he might die for what he did. All he was doing was serving the Lord. I would be having, I'd have a little sulk, a little little pout. I'd be a little angry with the Lord, but not him. He's telling them, he's writing back from prison saying, don't grumble or complain. Whatever circumstance you find yourself, learn therefore to be content in it. Do you know why he says that? Because he understands the sovereignty of God. 
and he trusts the goodness of God. And he knows that whatever circumstances he finds himself in, that is God's will for him in Christ Jesus. So stop grumbling, stop complaining about it, and just suck it up, buttercup, and do it. And the power of God will be there for you to do it. Sometimes I think our hearts become so used to complaining, so used to grumbling about everything that we almost enjoy being bitter and negative. And that's why it's so important that we guard our hearts. The word disputing, uh, the uh, the New King James, the, the, the translation I study from, says without disputing. But the NIV says arguing, and I like that better. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Um, The Greek meaning is the thinking of a man deliberating within himself, a thought, inward reasoning, a questioning about what is true. I'm questioning God. I'm angry about what's happening in my life. It's a doubting. It's a disputing or an arguing. And I want you to note that it refers to thoughts or reasoning or imagination. What's going up here in my head? That's why we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It actually means intellectual rebellion. I know what God's word says, but I'm having a little intellectual rebellion going on in my mind here because I'm already working through a different solution. Or I, I, I'm wondering why me and why not that person over there? Or how did I get the, you know, the, the, the bad end of the deal? Intellectual rebellion. I'm disputing God's word and rebelling against it in my mind. In this verse here, it's used in a negative sense of arguing against God. Disputes always arise because of pride, whether it be with a friend or an acquaintance or God himself. It always arises because of pride, which is the opposite of what Paul tells us to take on the character of Christ, which is humility. The ASV translates this word questioning, and I, I like that. In a sense, when we complain or grumble about something, we're questioning God. We're questioning his sovereignty, his goodness, his providence in our life. In fact, the the phrase complaining against God comes out in the Amplified. Let me read it to you. Do all things without grumbling and fault finding and complaining against God and questioning and doubting among yourselves that you may show yourself to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated children of God without blemish, faultless, unrebukable in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. I like that. Do everything without grumbling, fault finding, and complaining against God. Flip over to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. I want to just show you a few verses where that, those words are used. Numbers chapter 14, verse 27. This is God talking to Moses and Aaron. And he says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Notice he calls it evil when we complain. Notice the complaints are made against him. And notice that he hears our complaints, even if they're done in their tent, even if they're done in a whisper, even if they're done in in their mind. He hears the complaints against him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. It says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Complain as some of them complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Psalm 106, 24 through 25 says, They despised the pleasant land and they did not believe his word, but complained in their tents 
and did not heed the voice of the Lord. I really like the, the living translation there. It says, the people refused to enter the pleasant land, for they wouldn't believe his promise of, to care for them. Instead, they grumbled in their tent and refused to obey the Lord. You see, God gave them this great land and they despised it. They, they complained in their tent. And why did they do that? Because they refused to believe his promise to care for them. How many times when you're grumbling or complaining about something, if you really looked at that, could you say it was really refusal to believe that God would take care of you, that God cared for you, and that he was going to watch over you? I want you to notice that he compares complaining with not believing. So when I'm not trusting, I have an atmosphere that's ripe for complaining. When I get to a place where I question God's goodness and, and God's, God's faithfulness in my life, I have an atmosphere that's ripe for complaining and grumbling. It's a really important truth that we need to understand. Grumbling against God is important and needs to be dealt with swiftly because it says that we don't truly trust God. You see, complaining and grumbling is the outward evidence that we really don't trust God inwardly. Scott Harris says, it states that we think we know better than God what is best for us. It denies God's goodness, omniscience, and omnipotence. It treats God as if he were our servant. God in his mercy and grace freed ancient Israel from their slavery in Egypt, but they ended up with his judgment upon them for their continually grumbling against him. Is God good if your life, is God only good if your life is going the way you want it? You see, complete trusting of God in every situation is the answer to grumbling and complaining. I want you to see that grumbling comes first. And when you allow grumbling and complaining entrance into your life, it, disputing will soon follow. Fights and anger will soon follow. And here's the thing that fascinates me, is where, when we share our complaints or our grumbling or our, uh, you know, our, our complaining, with people who we believe will be sympathetic to us, those are the kind we go to, is somebody who will be sympathetic and lend an ear, <laughs> when really they might not even have the courage to stand up to us is probably what it amounts to. But when people give our complaining an ear, we feel more affirmed in our negative attitude and it will almost always lead to a dispute. Let me tell you about my husband and what he did to me and I'm gonna complain about him and grumble about him and then what does that do to Leslie's opinion about my husband? And if she feeds that grumbling and complaining in any way, shape, or form, it most always will lead to a dispute. Do you see it? And so we have a responsibility not just to not grumble or complain. We have a responsibility, church, to kill it if somebody else is coming to us grumbling or complaining. That's a very easy thing to do. You just don't feed it. Don't listen to it. Just say something positive in response. He says, do everything without grumbling or complaining so that... Look at that, so that, that's important. Go back to Philippians chapter two. Do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. That word, so that, is a term, a term of purpose or result. So the purpose of avoiding complaining and disputing is so that we will show ourselves as blameless, blameless is outward conduct, and innocent, which is inward character. We'll show ourselves that way to the world. If I don't complain and grumble, I'm doing that so that the world looks at me and sees something different in me. That I, am a, I appear to be a blameless child of God. 
Think about the society we're living in today. If we just made an effort to do everything without complaining or disputing, what a testimony that would be to others. Have you ever been around somebody who grumbles all the time or complains all the time? It's not much fun, is it? You probably already are thinking of somebody in your mind. Actually, if you've known somebody like that, they're probably not your friend anymore because they are not fun to be around. But a disputing person is a poor witness. A complaining person is a poor witness. He says, do this so that you become. Look at that, become. I'm not already, I'm going to become. When I choose not to complain, not to, not to grumble, not to dispute, I'm going to become, I'm going to mature and grow into a blameless, harmless child of God. Do you see that? How do we become? By choosing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by applying his word to our lives and, and, and living it. The word blameless there means just what it says, without blame or blameless, it, without fault. It's a picture of personal holiness. And it means our outward conduct, what people see. Stephen Cole says, blameless has the nuance of moral integrity as seen by others. It points to our outwardly observable behavior, including our attitudes. Nothing in our lives should give an occasion for scandal where unbelievers can look at how we live and say, I thought that was a Christian. How can he be a Christian and live like that? So you can become blameless and harmless. That word harmless, is, it means unmixed. It means pure as in wines or metal. It's in the mind. It means that your mind is free from a mixture of evil and good. They don't mix. They don't mix. It's a picture of inward character. It's used metaphorically in the New Testament of what is guileless and sincere. It means it really speaks of being the real thing, that which is genuine. One commentator says when it's used in reference to the mind or character, it means they're unmixed with evil or guile and therefore innocent and pure. He said, I want you to be blameless and harmless children of God. That, that children of God, children look like their father. We got a uh, a picture of our grandson uh, tonight right before we walked out the door and it stunned me. He looks so much like my son and children look like their father and they learn how to behave from their father. We are children of God. He's left us a manual on how to behave. We should look and act like our father in heaven. He says without fault, it means above reproach. Again, Stephen Cole says, the summary of the other two means without blemish. This word without fault is a summary of those other two words, and it means without blemish. Don, can we put that first, uh, that first slide up? This, it's such an interesting word in the Greek that I want you to see it. That's the word amoma. Do you see it? In the Greek, the letter A, the next slide, Don, the, the letter A, negates something. So anytime you see an A before a Greek word, it always negates what follows it. Are you, are you with me? So a, uh, moma. So it negates moma. And moma, <laughs> you, you need to know that momus was the, the, a Greek god who did nothing himself, but he found fault with everybody and everything. And so those in the, the for the Greek, they, they came to, to use the word moma to describe those who gripe and find fault. So are you following me? Amoma is what the word without fault means here. And so they're using a play on the words to say that Greek God who found fault with everybody and blamed everybody else for his stuff, <laughs> be the opposite of that. Be amoma. Negate moma. Negate griping and complaining. Negate it. 
have nothing to do with that. Paul says that the children of God are to not be fault finders and gripers. We are to be without blemish of complaining because we want this crooked and perverse generation to know that our Heavenly Father is good and He's loving and He's caring. Our testimony of Christ should be utmost in our minds at all times. I said to, when we were in prayer tonight, I was talking to, to the women about my, my father. I was just with my father who's dying, and, and I had such an understanding of the brevity of life and how quickly things can change, and we can be, we can be headed for eternity. And we live like we have forever. And I reminded them to always have eternity on your mind and, and to understand that our only purpose here, can I tell you, church, our only purpose in this world, the only reason we were put here, it wasn't to shop the sale at, at Macy's or, or, or to go do this fun thing and hang out with your friends. That's not why we were put here. We weren't put here even to have children. Well, I tell you, we, yeah, let's just, let's just say we, we, the only reason we were put here is to bring God glory. So our testimony about God should be foremost in our mind at all times. And so if I'm grumbling and complaining, is that a good testimony? No. Notice what he says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of, underline that if you write in your Bible, in the midst of. That, that's really important. Not disconnected from, in the midst of. A wicked and perverse generation. It doesn't mean you're on your best behavior when you're with your Christian friends. It means when you are in the, the midst of the world, that wicked and, and corrupted generation, you shine. You give a good testimony for the Lord. You do everything without grumbling or complaining. You work out your salvation and apply God's word to your life so that they can see you are blameless and, hard, and faultless children of God. It's easy to live that way among people you want to impress or other Christians who will hold you accountable but are you behaving like that when you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? J.B. Phillips says, living in a warped and diseased world. I like that. He says, shine like, like lights in a dark place when you're living in a warped and diseased world. What does that sound like? Let me give you the definition of crooked. It means crooked or curved or warped. It means perverse. But it's fascinating. It's where we get our word scoliosis. What's scoliosis? Does anybody know? A curvature of the spine. It's a crooked spine. And so he's, he's using that. To, that's where we get our word scoliosis from that Greek word, the Greek word which means crooked. A crooked and perverse world. So in a metaphorical sense, it refers to anything that deviates from the normal standards. So God's word gives us standards to follow. And anytime we deviate from his word, it's crooked. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, 5 through 6, see where we are in time. Deuteronomy 32, 5 through 6. This is in reference to the Israelites and all their grumbling and complaining against the Lord. He says, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked, crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? He says, you're his children and you've become corrupt and are acting like you're not his children. And is this the way you repay him for all he's done to you? Perverse generation. The definition is to distort, twist, turn aside. It means to plot against the saving purposes and plans of God. To turn aside from the right path. What does that sound like? 
a crooked and perverse generation. I'm sorry, it's probably going to make somebody angry, but I believe it's a society we're living in right now. A society that's turning aside from the right path. A society that's perverting and corrupting God's word. A society that's plotted against the saving purposes and plans of God. A society that calls evil good and good evil. And Paul is challenging us to live so differently that that we shine in the darkness of a world like that. And they see the difference in us. That word darkness means they're blind. They can't see. They don't know the truth. Show them the truth by the way you're living. It's in a society like ours that Christians should shine like lights because they're living so much differently than others. When do stars shine the brightest? When it's the darkest. The darker the night, the brighter the light. And so that should be true in our lives too. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're a city that's set on a hill. You don't hide a light under, uh, under, under a bushel. You put it out so everybody can see it. So he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and that glorify your Father in heaven. Why do we exist? To glorify our Father. This was fascinating to me, and I know we're short on time, but I, I feel like I need to still cover it. Romans 13, 11 through 14. I'm going to ask you to turn there because I want you to see this. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Now remember, we're talking about the works of darkness, the dark world. And he says, and do this, knowing the time. And oh, this is what I just want you to see. Having just come from my father, I I want you to see this. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. The day is at hand. He's coming soon. Let us, believers, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie or drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in lust, not in strife and not in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It's interesting. He's saying you have to to walk away from what's perverse and crooked. Walk away from those deeds of darkness and put it off. Verse 15b, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That word shine is in the present tense. It means a continuous, habitual shining. Everywhere I go, not just on a good day, I am shining for the Lord. How do we do that? The very next, next part of that verse holding fast the word of life. I used to think it was holding forth the word of life because that's how the New King James translates it. And I would be like, I'm holding forth the word of life for you to see, Cheryl. That's not it at all. If you look it up in the Greek, it means that word holding fast means to have or hold upon. It means to apply, listen, to observe, to attend to, to give attention to. How do we shine like stars in the night? We give attention to, we apply the word of life to our own life, and then we shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But we can't do that if we are not being attentive to the word of God. If we're not applying, if you leave here tonight and you're like, she talked too much and took too much time, and then you go home and go to bed and turn on the TV, you are not applying You're not holding forth the word of life. But if you leave here tonight and you say, I'm going to try that. Rhea says I'm to work out my salvation and the Holy Spirit is going to do it and will it within me. So he's doing all the work. I'm just yielding to it. 
Lord, I I don't want to grumble and complain this week. I'm giving you permission to convict my spirit when I do it, to stop me in the midst of my, 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 my complaining. He will empower you to do that. But the only way we shine like stars in the night is to hold on to the word of life. You see, our walk must come before the talk. See, we get, that, we, we get that reversed. I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to bring you to church. I want to preach you a story. I'll preach up a storm to you. And I want to bless you, sister. Let me pray for you. And we want to do all that. But yet our walk is not matching that talk. And if I stood up here tonight and I stood on one foot and I said, really, I'm standing on two, what are you going to believe? You're going to believe what you see. And you see, we are witnessing. There's, I'm, I'm so thrilled you're witnessing. But we are witnessing to people about Jesus. But we are doing something completely different. And that's confusing. That's confusing. Our walk must match our talk. We have to hold forth the word of God in our own life so that we can shine. Paul ends by saying, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. He wants them to continue to apply and hold on to the word of God in their lives, the word he's taught them, (laughs) so that he knows he didn't run in vain. Can I tell you, my life is so full. I, I, I have such a busy life. I barely, I just have time for very little. And, and there, I, I, my life is scheduled because I'm so busy. I don't need to come here Monday night. I'm in the word of God. I can preach to myself just fine. I'm here because I, I, I know I'm called to do this. And you see, when you hold forth the word that you get here, when you take the word that I preach to you, you hold it forth in your life and you begin to shine. Baby, I have not run my, my race in vain. I haven't labored in vain. And that's what Paul is saying there. And then he goes on and he says, just in closing, he says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, I just want to talk to you for a moment about that because it's fascinating to me. Um, Apparently, you know, the Philippians would have been familiar with what Paul was saying here. We may not be, but but I want you to remember that Paul is in jail and and he's not had an easy life and, and he's connecting his sacrifice and their faith together and he's saying it's worship. I've been studying um, Cornania, which is communion. It's where we get our word communion, fellowship, communion, communion. So I was doing this study on all the koinonias in the word of God. And do you know that we have koinonia in suffering? The fellowship of suffering. Paul is saying, I'm suffering in prison right now, but it's my act of worship. And I'm watching your faith grow. And I'm combining those two. And baby, if I get poured out, that's just pour me out like a drink offering. You see, in ancient, David, correct me if I'm wrong. In ancient, um, uh, in ancient times, they had what they called a libation offering. It was usually in in pagan cultures, but but the the people Paul was writing to would have understood what he was saying here. And what they would do, it was a liquid offering. And usually it was a super good wine or an expensive oil or an expensive perfume mixed together. It was costly, whatever it was. And they would take it, and instead of keeping it for themselves, they would pour it out on a sacrifice. And that would be an act of worship. Are you following me? And what it was saying is, I'm giving you the best that I have, and I'm pouring it out on that sacrifice. I'm not keeping it for myself. I'm giving everything that I have on that sacrifice. That's what Paul was saying. 
It was symbolic of keeping the best to pour out in worship. It's, it was symbolic of being all in. I'm pouring it all out on him. I'm not keeping it for myself. I'm pouring out all that I have. Paul was saying, I don't care if I'm in jail. I don't care if I lose my life. All I know is I got the best I have and I'm pouring it out on him. And I'm pouring it out on the sacrifice that you're making, the sacrifice of your faith. It's interesting. The service of your faith means a worship service is what it really means. I was so blessed by Megan tonight. She was talking about worship. Oh, we're so, we don't understand worship. I watch people come in after worship and I think, oh, we don't understand worship. Pouring the best that I have out on him because he's so worthy of my worship. He's so worthy. Paul was saying, I, I don't care what happens to my life. I'm laying it down for the gospel because I am so convinced that he is worthy of it. <laughs> so this week when you want to complain or grumble, can you die to that thing? Can you die to that and say, Lord, I just, I, I just want to pour myself out for you. And if that means I have to overlook this, this thing that seems to be an imposition in my life or an inconvenience in my life or it's not fair in my life, if I have to overlook it and do it with a smile on my face, I'm going to do it because I understand that is part of me shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. See, I don't, uh, yeah, good word. Do you understand how, just take an inventory this week, how often we complain. Even leave here. Oh, she talked for 50 minutes. I so want you to be blessed. And so, Father, I pray for my friends. I pray you bless them. You'd watch over and protect them. I pray even going home tonight that angels would be round about their cars and that you'd get them home safely and I pray, Lord, that this word, no matter how I spoke it, Lord God, would be alive inside of them. Lord, that it would not be far from them throughout this week, that they would be constantly reminded, Lord God, that you would bring it back to memory for all of us, Lord. I'm so thankful that your word is powerful and it's active. It doesn't ever return void in our life. And so prosper it in our hearts and minds and bless my friends, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.